Would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, may we heed your call that we might proclaim the gospel to all people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Before we start, um, some of you may, some of you may not know that at the moment um, I am forming three candidates for catechism. And I'd like to invite them forward today because, as I told them this morning, one of their questions is the subject of the sermon. And so they're going to do a little recitation for you. So, forward. And yes, you have to stand in front of the pulpit, not behind it. Then they can't see you. All right. Are you ready to do the first three questions? The first three? That's the one you have memorized, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. You got the first one. What is your name? Who gave you this name? What did your parents and godfathers and godmothers do for you then? The readings today go well on the footsteps of the baptism last Sunday, and if you couldn't hear it, I wanted to repeat the last question that was asked. In baptism, I'm adding that, they promised and vowed three things in my name. First, that I should renounce the devil and all of his works, the empty promises and deadly deceits of this wicked world, and all the sinful desires of the flesh. Second, that I should believe all the articles of the Christian faith. And third, that I should keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of my life. It's been helpful to my faith to be teaching these things as um, we as Christians continually need to hear them, don't we? Not just in those young, tender years, but as we go along in life's struggles and challenges. And last Sunday, when we celebrated the baptism of Jonah and Laura, we began at the back doors of the church, symbolizing their candidacy and leaving behind one type of existence, one state of being, in favor of another. On their behalf, their godparents renounced the devil, the world, and the flesh, and turned to Jesus, joyfully received the Christian faith revealed, and vowed to keep God's holy will by his help. 
It's a particular thing in liturgy that we literally, not just figuratively, walk the walk together. Sometimes standing, sometimes kneeling, sometimes sitting, sometimes walking around the church in prayer and in renunciation and profession, as we saw last week. And that's to help us because it's so difficult for us to continue that walk in the world that we need to involve our whole beings in that. The baptism service mirrors today's twin themes of repent and believe. It's a very simple theme, but it's very complicated in application. Repent and believe. God calls individuals, the nations, and indeed all humanity to turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil and to follow him as revealed in his son, Jesus. And the message is far from the moralism that we sometimes hear. Sometimes we hear that moralism alone from the church. But just like the baptismal vows, the theme of repent and believe is balanced. God doesn't stop after calling individuals and people out of the depths of their sin, as we sang in Psalm 130 today, but he also bids them to enter into the kingdom of light with him, in him, by him. Repent and believe. God is consistent with that message throughout his word when we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And this morning I want to draw your attention and focus principally on the gospel according to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is not a gospel book. Some of you caught that. But here today, in our reading from Jeremiah, the gospel is very clear. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 this morning, where we read, Return, O faithless sons, says the Lord. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord God, respond God's people. Truly, the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And then, of course, it goes on. Here we see God addressing his people and their treachery, but also their people responding, first in faithlessness and then in faith given by God. If you feel like you've entered into the middle of the story here, it's because you have. In Jeremiah, in this passage, God is speaking to his Old Testament people who have again turned away from him in favor of false gods. And if you're reading the evening readings this year in the daily office lectionary, you know what's going on, right? Because we're in Jeremiah in our daily office readings in the evening. The reforming king Josiah is on the throne and the Book of the Covenants has been rediscovered. And the, that is the first five books of the Bible, which had been lost. And in 2 Kings chapter 23, the people of God resolve again to keep the covenant and abandon the false gods to which they had returned. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to look with me very quickly at this section, which is not in our lectionary readings. 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 5 through 10. 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 5 
through 10. So Josiah's put these reforms together as the king, and we read this, And then he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offering in the high places and at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron and burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings of the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the ones left and on the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his sons or his, his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chambers of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roofs of the upper chamber of Ahaz. And the passage goes on. But I think you've got the point. Things were in a bad state when God revealed his word once again to his people during Josiah's reign. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah here is addressing God's people who have yet again fallen into sin and treachery. You see... Beginning with King Solomon, God's people continually lose their way, beginning to worship other gods and the cultures around them, in addition to the one true God. And this Canaanite god, gods rather, included all sorts of terrible things which were listed in that passage from Second Kings, including prostitutes, orgies, and child sacrifice. Despite King Josiah's reforms, however, the people persisted in worshiping these false gods and returning to them. In today's passage, they're back at it again. They're back on the heights in the ruins of their apostasy. Look at verse 21 of today's first reading, Jeremiah 3. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and the pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Is it any wonder that the Lord God calls them faithless sons, collectively, and a treacherous wife? Treachery, being a traitor to God, a God who has repeatedly saved them and offered them grace. That's the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And of course, we know that's the story of humanity, too. And yet, 
God offers his grace. Look at verse 22. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Repent and believe, we might add. This is not mere judgment or moralism. God does not say just stop it, stop worshiping other idols, stop being traitors, stop being faithless. Although that he does say. No, he's looking here for a cry of repentance, not a cry of lament or despair. And there's a difference between those, right? Those of you that have children know that. There's a difference between crying out because you've been caught and you don't like the fact that you can't have your own way and crying out because you know your parents love you and you're going to change what you're doing. The two cryings are not the same, right? One is, oh, I feel bad for myself. Boy, I've really screwed it up this time. And the second is, boy, I've really messed this up. Can you help me change? God's people realize here that they've squandered their inheritance. Verse 24 and 25 makes it clear that they know that they haven't obeyed God. Read that with me. It's at the bottom of the insert there. So this is God's people speaking. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And I think God and the prophet here, in his words, purposely leaves this open-ended. Is this a cry of lament, or is this a cry of repentance? I looked through many commentators this week, and there's arguments for both. But I think the ambiguity is intentional to make us face that question. When we cry out to the Lord, sometimes in despair and sometimes in anger, are we crying out just in lament because we didn't get our way, like petulant children, or are we crying out, truly wanting help and grace? Like the prophet Isaiah, the church must always be clear about what is good and evil and what is sinful and what is virtuous. But people who are truly searching for God don't have to be convinced that their way of life is wrong. Let me say that again. People that are truly searching for God do not have to be convinced that their way of life is wrong. They know it. Deep down, they know it. But they might not admit to it. What they need to hear is that God desires them to repent and to follow him. Repent and believe. Don't just lament and cry out in despair. Turn away from the deadly deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and believe in God himself. In today's gospel, Simon and Andrew don't need convincing, do they? Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16. 
passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then jump down to verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Do you see, the story of both Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, is to leave their nets and follow Christ. How many times, how many times have you had a friend or relative that you care about repeatedly do foolish things and then cry out about it? But is lament enough to change their world? No. How many times do you and I foolishly cry out only lamenting what we've done and not willing to repent and change our ways? Just having remorse isn't enough. It might be a step, but without the next step of repentance, it just leads to despair. Admitting you have a problem is the first step, but God desires persons and peoples to turn away from what they're doing, and to follow him instead. Repent and believe. In order that they can have him, so they can be at home with him, so that they can be free of guilt and shame and despair and all the fallout of their sin. The crucial message that Christians need to remember is that calling people to repentance and belief is not just for the sake of morality— or the sake of respectability. Calling people to repentance and belief is not just for dependability, or so that you or I can have good friendships with them that don't hurt us, although there's lots of good that come with repenting and believing. No, calling people to repentance and belief is so that they might be freed and personally know and be known by the living God rather than trying to appease the false ones that they've set up in their lives. The empty promises, the deadly deceits of this world, the sinful desires of this world, the flesh and the devil, envelop people. You know, that's a military term. It's when one army overtakes another army and completely surrounds them to be enveloped, right? It's the same idea of, you know, an envelope, a paper envelope that you put your letter in, right? That, that letter is enveloped by the paper and protected. Except in the army's case, it means you're destroyed. People are enveloped, friends, by these gods. Do you think that people who struggle with alcoholism are really happy? Do you think people that are sleeping around or doing drugs are really happy and content? How about people who gamble their way and gamble away to money for their money for a cheap thrill. Do you think that that gives them satisfaction? How about people who end up in all of the end of these things, if you talk to them, they end up in shame and despair? Surely we've squandered these things from our youth. How about the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world? Do you think that people who work for hours on end worrying about their jobs nonstop are happy? How about those who have sacrificed their children's well-being or their children themselves 
on the Sanctity of Life Sunday for their careers? Do you think they're happy? How about the generational pain that strained relationships have, been in, have caused? How much of that has been inflicted on individuals because of the empty promises of this world? The promise that if she could just be free of this marriage and be with her one true love, she'd be happy. Or how many, of, how many people have been devoured by their desire for wealth? How much wealth has been destroyed by divorce? How many fathers and mothers have been estranged from their children because of the empty promises of wanting to marry the person that they should marry? Or the identity issues that we're seeing in our culture today? How many daughters weep because their mothers were too busy living a self-indulgent life to be mothers? Dear friends, these are the real gods of our time, the gods of our nation, the gods of too many of us. And these are just some of the stories that I've shared with you. These are personal experiences that I've had with people over the years and experienced some, indeed, far too personally myself. There's, there's many more, there's many variations. But as Pastor Philip Ryken writes, false gods are harsh taskmasters. They always damage the people that worship them. And do you see how many and clever these false gods are? Do you see how costly worshiping at their altars and falling victim to their li lies is? Not just to you as an individual, but to your family, to those who surround you, to those who love you. With Jeremiah, many people can say, verse 24 and 25, right? Let's look at it one more time. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. Many of us can say that. Many in our money surrounding us in the world can say that. But the true God does not desire his sons or daughters to lie down and die in shame and dishonor. That's the good news of the gospel. No, God's grace permeates even this. It's true there's a message here of judgment, but it's for the sake of restoration. Go back to the beginning of the Jeremiah reading. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 22. I said, and this is the Lord speaking, How I would long to set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountain. Truly the Lord our God is the God of salvation, of Israel. The message of the gospel, dear friends, is one of hope. Repent and believe. 
Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. God defines what's good and evil, and He calls humans to repent so that they might not live out miserable lives in this world. And if we're we're living out a miserable life, the question is why? Too often, it's because we just lament rather than repent and believe. We first and foremost believe that the good news of the gospel is true. But God is for us. He's loved us. And he's intervened in our world in the person of Jesus, who will one day restore all things, but is currently restoring things too. Let's not forget that. Recall, Simon and Andrew were called for a purpose. So God calls each Christian, each of you and each of us, for a purpose in his kingdom. Towards the glory. As N.T. Wright, once bishop and scholar, writes, the rescue and transformation that God effected in the death and resurrection of Jesus is to become the rescue and transformation of every person. Let me say that again. In defining the gospel, N.T. Wright writes, the rescue and transformation that God effected in the death and resurrection of Jesus is to become the rescue and transformation of every person. We repent so that we might believe in that. As Christians, we must call those around us to repent, not beating them up, but simply declaring what is good and what is wrong clearly so that they might be called to repentance. And yet when they repent, we must rejoice that the person of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will enter into them and transform them. We need to be clear about both of those things. Repent and believe. Repent so that you're no longer in bondage to false gods, to empty promises, to deadly deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Repent so that you're not in despair anymore, but also repent so that you might believe. Forgive, be forgiven, and be restored by Jesus. That is open to everybody. That is the gospel that we proclaim. And those of us who have been Christians for years need to hear that again and again and again. For we too must live a life of repenting and believing that we might know him better. And so I'll end with another quote from Philip Ryken, who writes this. Repentance is not something that we do so that God will let us come back home. It's what going home is all about. Repentance is not something we do so that God will let us come back home. It is what going back home is all about. Repent and believe and come home to the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.